Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 56. So you guys can stand for the reading of the word, if able. And it will come on momentarily. We lost, we lost power again. We, had, we, we, had, lo- we lost power. We had, we had a trip. So, so just, just read it. Just so read it live. Come on the board. Just read it live. Read it live. This is great for my first time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here we go. Listen to the words, the reading of the word. All right. Um, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to, to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw, saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Um, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so many disciples came to him. This is a remote place, he said, they said, and it's already late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding courtside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would be eight months of a man's wages. Um, are we to go and spend that much of bread on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave gave them to the disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Immediately, wait, yeah, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go, go ahead, go on ahead of him to Beth, Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them, but when, he saw, when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought it was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were, com- they were completely amazed for that. They had not understood about the lows. Their hearts were hardened. Uh, when they had crossed over, they landed in Genesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick of mats to wherever they had they uh, wherever they heard he was, and wherever he he was into villages, towns, and courtside. They placed the sick. 
in the marketplaces. They begged him to let, to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. This is the word of God. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for um, another day. We thank you for life, health, and strength. We thank you for food, shelter, and clothing, Father. We just pray that you would um, allow this word to be received by your people and that you would just um, bless this word and let it resonate with us. Um, we pray for Pastor David as he, he, he comes up and um, delivers this to us. And in your name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thanks, David. Uh, this is the newcomer's lunch. I'm just going to send it around since this is the last day. So uh, if you're interested in joining us for lunch after the service next week, we'll just send it back this side and then over on my right, and Crystal will grab it after the service. So we're going to continue in our series from the Gospel of Mark uh, today. Uh, we're about a third of the way into, uh, into the Gospel, taking large chunks at a time and trying to pull out some big themes from those. Again, if you didn't hear already, we had a large power surge in here during the windstorm this week, so hence some of the flickering lights and uh, some of the, the slight technical difficulties. Thanks to everybody for being flexible today. Uh, so do please keep your Bibles open to Mark, and uh, we'll be looking at these different uh, stories that, uh, that the evangelist Mark includes uh, in his narrative of Jesus and what Jesus is doing in the region of Galilee. This is a bit of an overview. This has been a, a hectic season for Jesus. Uh, if you were here last week, we saw that Jesus and his disciples returned to his hometown of Nazareth, and there he was belittled and rejected by his hometown. Uh, we also saw that uh, Herod Antipas, who was the king in that region, executed Jesus's cousin John in a pretty gruesome way. And, uh, and then Jesus fulfills his promise to the 12 disciples by sending them out for the first time. Two by two, he sends them uh, throughout the Galilean region to proclaim the kingdom of God and to cast out evil. And our passage begins with those 12 uh, returning and telling Jesus all that has uh, happened during their mission in the Galilean region. And Jesus says, okay, come away with me. His first response is, you're back. Now let's get away. We're going to go out to the wilderness where we'll get some peace and quiet. We'll get some time together. So they, uh, they reach this desert area, this deserted area of the wilderness. Uh, but the word is out. Uh, now, not only is Jesus recognized by the villages, but the 12 apostles are recognized as well. And so Mark tells us that people recognize them, the apostles. The word gets out and thousands of people flock to this deserted area to be near the disciples and Jesus. The disciples are a bit freaked out by this, as you would be as well, seeing thousands of people kind of spontaneously arrive in a wilderness area. So they tell Jesus, send them away. We don't have enough food for them. Send them to one of the surrounding towns. Now, the passage tells us there's 5,000 men. So what? Eight, nine, 10, 12,000 people altogether. It's a large group of people. They say, send them to one of the surrounding towns. The problem is the villages in the area are no more than two to 3,000 in size. So you can't just like send 10,000 people onto one of these villages. It's not going to work. There's not going to be enough food. So Jesus says, well, well, you feed them. And he said, it would cost me a year's wages to feed this many people. We don't have that kind of money. So Jesus performs this miracle. He feeds them with five loaves and two fish. And then the, the passage tells us that as soon as this was done, immediately Jesus forced his disciples to leave. And then he dismisses the crowd. 
Jesus goes up and he has some time by himself to pray. And, and as he's kind of up maybe on a bluff on the Sea of Galilee, he looks out, it's nighttime, and he sees that the disciples are struggling against a storm. They're not making any progress. And so as you do, if you're Jesus, he walks out on the water and just terrifies them. They just lose their minds. Uh, and then Jesus ends up saving them. The storm blows them off course. They don't make it to the destination they were heading to. They arrive at a different town, and again, the word is out, and people just want to be healed. They, they're not even interested in Jesus' message, and so they, they touch him, hoping that they will be healed, and the passage tells us that many, many were healed. So this is kind of the big picture here, and um, is this working, by the way? Okay, so we'll look at that in a second. This is the big picture here, and, and given sort of the chaos of these scenes, there can be... Um, can be a, a tendency to read a passage like this as though Jesus is reacting to his circumstances. There's stormy seas, there's hungry crowds, there's confused disciples. There's a natural way of reading a passage like this as though Jesus uh, were reacting to his circumstances. So let me kind of try to give you a visual of how we read a passage like this. This is one of my real fancy visualizations to help us picture this, right? So we, maybe we kind of start by noticing the circumstances of this passage. In this case, hungry crowds, stormy seas. This is what grabs our attention. And then next, we can think about Jesus responding to that. Jesus acting in response to those circumstances. He feeds the crowds. He calms the seas. And then we get to everything's okay. <laughs> We're okay. We made it. We're satisfied. Our stomachs are full. We're safe. We made it to dry land. And this, I think, is a pretty understandable way of, of reading a passage like this, of interpreting a passage uh, like this. We uh, tend to start with our circumstances. That's kind of how we're, how we're wired. It's often how we view God's interaction in our own lives. We, we don't start with God. We start with our circumstances, especially when our circumstances are, are not good at any given moment. God, we need you to intervene. We need you to, to, to do something about what's wrong. Uh, actually, though, the way Mark tells this story, I think very intentionally asks us to read it a different kind of way. Mark is asking us to see that it's not the circumstances that control the action of these stories. It's Jesus in his power and his wisdom who is in control. So let me give you some examples of this, and then we'll have another way of kind of visualizing this passage. In verse 31, Jesus says, come with me by yourselves. Verse 34, he, Jesus, began to teach them. Verse 37, Jesus says, you give them something to eat. 38, how many loaves do you have, Jesus asks. Go and see. 39, Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups. Verse 40, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. 41, then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. Verse 45, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him. Verse 46, he went on a mountainside to pray. And finally, verse 48, he saw the disciples straining at the oars. He went out to them. A story like this with dramatic events like thousands of people being fed with five loaves and two fish or Jesus walking on the water, dramatic events can kind of distract us. But as we just saw in these examples, Mark wants us to see very clearly that Jesus remains the center of this story. And the, despite all of the commotion and all of the chaos, he remains in control. So here's a second way that I think Mark would have us read this passage. It begins with the fact that Jesus is in control. Jesus says, come with me. 
Jesus directs his disciples. Jesus prays to his father. Jesus feeds the hungry multitude. Jesus sees the disciples on the lake. Jesus rescues them from the storm. And on and on it goes. Mark just hits this over and over again. Jesus is the center of the story, not the circumstances. Jesus is in control, which leads then to the difficult circumstances. We don't start with the circumstances. Jesus then steps into the chaos, the commotion, the confusion, the hunger, the storm. We begin with Jesus at the center in control. He steps into the difficult circumstances. And then finally, we watch as the kingdom advances. And by the way, we're okay as well. We're saved. We're rescued. We're caught up in God's kingdom advancing. They were completely amazed, the passage tells us. This, I think, is important for us to see. This is not the main point of the sermon, but I, I, I want us to try to read these verses the second way. I think this is what Mark wants us to see. We start with Jesus, him being the center, him being in control, him stepping into the chaos so that his kingdom can advance. You with me? Mm-hmm. Are you with me? Yeah. Yep. So I think once we can begin to see the passage this way, things get even more interesting than they immediately are um, because Jesus is not somehow randomly responding to his circumstances. Instead, Jesus is deliberately stepping into those circumstances for a purpose that is greater than the circumstances. In other words, the hungry crowds and the stormy seas are not, in, are not arbitrary circumstances that Jesus responds to. They are instead the stage on which Jesus reveals how the kingdom of God is advancing in the world. And yet, given our human tendency to make our immediate circumstances the center of the universe... It's much more natural for us to begin with our circumstances rather than with God's sovereignty and control. And Mark knows this. He acknowledges this. And he actually gives us two examples of this playing out in our story. What does it look like when we start with ourselves, with our circumstances, rather than with God? The first example is the crowd's response to Jesus feeding them. Now, it's subtle in this passage, but there's a A couple things for us to notice, and then the Gospel of John fills in the details. Jesus does this amazing thing, five loaves, two fishes, feeds thousands and thousands of people. And if you notice, the passage says that once this is done and they've collected up the basketfuls of leftovers, what does Jesus do? He immediately kind of forces the disciples to leave. And then he dismisses the crowd. Now that's counterintuitive, right? Like, if we had a moment like that, if we have five loaves and two fishes and this amazing thing happened, I'd be like, y'all just stick around. This is going to be awesome. We're just going to hang out here together indefinitely. This is amazing. Jesus says, go, get out of here, leave. That's weird, right? Until we kind of think about some of the surrounding context. Thousands of people, Mark points out, 5,000 men gathered in the wilderness This is sort of a rebellious action. This is a Galilean region that is known for its revolt against Rome. There's common practice of young revolutionaries gathering in the wilderness in order to plan their attack against Rome. John tells us in his parallel passage that the crowd, after being fed by Jesus, planned to make Jesus king by force. In other words, they had their plans and their agendas for Jesus. They were starting with their circumstances for what they needed to have accomplished, for how they thought things needed to be fixed, defeat Rome, cleanse the temple, etc. 
And so they foisted onto Jesus their idea of who he should be. And so Jesus quickly, dis- you guys, disciples, you got to get out of here. We're not going to let this happen and dismisses the crowd before things can go too much further. So that's one example of starting with our circumstances. The second is in the disciples' response to Jesus when he walks on the water. Now, to their credit, they'd probably never seen anybody walking on water. To their credit, if we saw that happen, we'd probably lose our minds as well. However, they had just seen Jesus feed thousands of people with like saltines and sardines, right? Like that had, that was a thing that had just happened. They had literally just seen that hours before. What happens? The disciples interpret the feeding of the 5,000 as sort of a one-time fix for their circumstances. They interpret that miraculous moment to have more to do with extracting them from a difficult, uncomfortable, confusing circumstance rather than being a miracle that was supposed to say something about who Jesus was. Mm -hmm. Right? And so they can't make the application to what happens on the stormy seas. Oh, Jesus, you fixed that thing, that circumstance, that situation. But now this is an entirely different thing going on over here. So I don't know if you're going to be able. But it was about Jesus. See, the disciples started with their circumstances. The crowd started with their circumstances. And so both of them kind of miss what Jesus is actually doing. Let's try not to do that today. Amen. Amen. Let's begin with Jesus. Him being the center. Him being uh, in control. By making Jesus the unmistakable center of these stories, the controlling center of these stories, Mark is asking us to pay some very, very close attention. In these stories, Jesus is in control, and what he says and what he does has vast implications for our understanding of God's salvation in the world. So here's the big idea for the rest of this sermon. There is salvation in the wilderness. This is Lent, so we talk about the wilderness a lot just so happens the passage is about the wilderness. So turn to your neighbor and say, there is salvation in the wilderness. There is salvation in the wilderness. Okay, I can tell you're not entirely convinced. Let me try to convince you. The New International Version that we read from uh, this morning translates the place where Jesus and the crowds gathered as a remote or a solitary place. Other translations will call this a deserted place or a desert place. In other words, thousands of people have traveled to the wilderness to be near Jesus. Why? This is not normal. Why did they do this? When Jesus calls the crowd sheep without a shepherd, he's identifying their need for salvation. They need to be saved from something. And apparently the crowd agrees with this. They recognize their need for salvation. Why else would they leave behind families and homes and responsibilities and jobs? Why else would they leave all of this behind for the wilderness? Maybe we think like, well, back then people just went into the wilderness. They didn't have anything better to do. No, they didn't. Just like you wouldn't. They had better things to do with their time. The wilderness is not where you hung out. So Jesus and the crowd agree. The people gathering need salvation. But salvation from what? Think about it for a minute. What sort of enemies, what sort of destructive circumstances would compel you to leave behind safety and comfort and walk into the risky wilderness? What would be so powerful, so bad that you would be compelled to walk into the wilderness looking for salvation. 
Well, however you think about that, the women and men in the wilderness that day, they didn't really have to think about that question too long. They were very clear on who their enemies were. They would have started with Rome. Rome has occupied our land. They have put us in an internal exile. They've desecrated our holy city. They've corrupted our temple. They have oppressed our sons and our daughters. They have literally taxed us into poverty. They were very clear that Rome was the enemy. They also would have included someone like Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, this sort of puppet king who Rome had propped up. Herod, who had built his capital on a, on a Jewish cemetery, desecrating an entire city. Herod, who throws this lavish, opulent, sort of disgusting party and ends up killing one of the prophets. Herod would have been an enemy. And then probably some of their own countrymen who would have been seen as sellouts, tax collectors who worked for Rome, certain religious leaders who got their authority and their influence from Herod and, and for, from Rome. They knew who their enemies were. They knew who they needed to be saved from. The people felt pressed on every side. And so they had come to Jesus for salvation. And I would say rightly so. Throughout his ministry, Jesus would cause tax collectors to repent and to give back all they had stolen and more to their countrymen. Throughout his ministry, Jesus would be opposed by the religious leaders who realized the threat that Jesus had become to the status quo. At the end of his life, the Roman government and Herod would set aside their vast differences. They were enemies before Jesus in order to come together to see him executed. So there's some real enemies here that the people needed to be rescued from. But beyond these obvious and very dangerous enemies, there's another reason that God's salvation was required on that day, a reason that was much greater and closer than the people tended to realize. Think about this for a minute. Jesus could have begun his ministry anywhere he wanted to. He could have, for example, gone to the, the Jewish city of Caesarea, a city that was built on the Mediterranean by King Herod, beautiful city built to honor Rome. It had palaces, it had stadiums, it had temples to pagan gods. A city like this on Jewish soil represented everything that was wrong for the Jewish people. This was the enemy that needed to be defeated. Jesus could have begun his ministry here by directly confronting the symbols of oppression and evil. Herod, Rome, the sellouts. But that's not what happens, is it? Jesus instead begins his ministry in a different wilderness where for 40 days he is attacked and tempted by Satan by God's enemy, by the personification of evil. His ministry begins there. Now let's think about the end of his ministry. He rides into Jerusalem as a, as a conquering king with people shouting praises to him, laying palm branches and, and cloaks in front of them, all the symbolism of a conquering king. Jesus in that moment should have led the people to the Roman garrison in Jerusalem, the garrison that literally overlooked the temple to make sure that the Jews stayed in line during their festivals. This is where the revolution should have happened. Where does he go instead? He goes to the outside of the temple where the money changers are, where people are, are keeping others from being reconciled to God, where people are turning a profit on those who have come to be forgiven by God and redeemed by him. Again, let's be really clear. It's not that Jesus does not care about the suffering inflicted by Rome and by Herod. He absolutely does. He repeatedly addresses this so much though that they will kill him. 
It's just that the scope of his salvation is far greater than those mortal and temporary enemies. So the crowds leave behind the comfort and safety of their homes for the potential of salvation in the wilderness because they know they need a savior. They know they need to be rescued. They know the power and the evil of their enemies. And yet Jesus, over the course of his ministry, will repeatedly try to show them you've missed the full extent of your need. Behind the greed, nationalism, idolatry, ethnocentrism, and warmongering of their obvious enemies lay a spiritual enemy whose aim was their complete destruction. There there is, as, as Peter would say later, a prowling lion who is bent on their annihilation, a prowling lion who makes Rome and Herod look like the puppets they were. And if this is true, if Jesus is right, then the salvation needed by those in the crowd that day must have been far greater and far closer than they had previously imagined. This salvation must extend beyond what their eyes could see. It must include the cure for the sin that had infected their hearts and their souls. Now, this is very important for us. The crowds... Until they could understand the depths of their need, until they could grasp the scope of the salvation that was necessary for them, the crowds would never be able to fully accept Jesus as their true and legitimate Savior. And this is what happens. In the end, many in the crowd will turn on Jesus because they're unwilling to acknowledge the extent of their need. They want a savior who will rescue them from one set of enemies while ignoring the sin and rebellion in their own hearts. Which I think leads us to ask this about ourselves. What is our understanding? What is your understanding of your need for salvation? Over the years, I have I've noticed a tendency in my own heart. I've noticed it among us. A tendency to accept one portion of our need for salvation while ignoring other ways in which we need salvation. For example, some of us this morning know very precisely our personal sin. We have wrestled deeply with the guilt and the shame that has come with our rebellion and our sin against a holy and righteous God. We rejoice in the blood of Jesus that cleanses us of our sin. When we sing, I never know, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon the cross. Some of us really mean it. Mm. Mm -hmm. And we sing it with joy. Others of us, on the other hand, we're very in touch with the corruption and the oppression in our city and in our world. We know the effect of unjust government policies, of budget cuts that target the poor. We know of politicians whose wealth insulates them from the reality on our streets. We know of the racist assumptions that infect school curriculums and hiring policies, of the destructive sexism that gets excused with a knowing wink, and on and on. We're deeply in touch 
with these injustices in our world and our city. We know that the corruption runs so deep that nothing short of a direct intervention by the God of righteousness and justice will satisfy our need. So when we sing about the dancers who dance upon injustice, we are viscerally in our bones anticipating the day and that dance for justice. Amen? Mm-hmm. But for some reason, like the crowd attempting to force a particular role onto Jesus, we often limit the scope of Jesus' salvation to either our personal salvation or the restoration of our corrupt world. Now, maybe not in theory. I doubt any of us this morning would say like, no, I'm only for forgiveness of personal sin. No, I'm only for the restoration of the world. In theory, like we're good with it all, right? In practice, though, in practice, some of us weep over our personal sin. Some of us weep over the way that evil has corrupted our hearts. And yet we ignore the plight of those neighbors who are suffering. Others of us, we will be quick to take our lament and our anger to the streets, protesting the damage done by the powers and the principalities of this world. And yet our passion does not seem to extend to our own sinful hearts and corrupted souls. Just like the crowds who were ready to remake Jesus to fit their agenda, we whittle Jesus down to the limited perspective of our needs. We make him into our private confessor, or we make him into a political revolutionary in our image. And in doing so, we miss the full scope and extent of the kingdom's agenda. And because we limit What should be limitless, Jesus repeatedly disappoints us. Maybe we won't directly oppose him. Maybe we won't directly deny him or betray him, though we might. Our disappointment will tend to be a bit more subtle. We'll just ignore half of Jesus' salvation agenda so that we can remain comfortable with our own perceived needs. And the result, the the devastating result, is that instead of experiencing the amazing fullness of God's all-encompassing salvation, we'll content ourselves with something much smaller. Salvation that begins to look suspiciously like a religious version of our culture's consumerism and partisanship. Last week, I suggested that one reason some of us are not experiencing a vital and relevant relationship with God is that we've stopped taking the small steps of faith that God has asked of us. Mm. I want to add to this this morning by suggesting that until you and I submit to the entire range of God's salvation, until we confess the full extent of our need for salvation, Until we see our need for salvation from the corrupt powers of this world and our own sinful corruption. Until then, Jesus will continue to disappoint us. Why? Because he will never allow himself to be contained by our limited expectations. 
His all-encompassing agenda cannot be co-opted by your small imagination. It's only when we lay aside our agendas, it's only when we confess our short-sightedness that things start to get really good. Jesus' power becomes clear when we come to the end of ourselves, when we admit that, in fact, God knows better than we about our need for salvation. This power and this capacity is what Mark wants us to see. In the wilderness, as Jesus exerts his divine control, we are shown what kind of a savior he is. A savior who is able to defeat all of our enemies. There is salvation in the wilderness. Amen? Amen. Which means that there is a savior in the wilderness. As we see more clearly, the kind of savior that Jesus is will hopefully begin to hear the compelling call to leave behind the comforts and safety of our corrupt world, to trade it in for God's salvation in the wilderness. So what kind of a savior calls us to the wilderness in order to know God's comprehensive salvation? Well, again, going back to that phrase, like sheep without a shepherd, when Jesus uses this, the people in the crowd would have called to mind the Old Testament. This was not language that was new with Jesus. He was using it for his own purposes. And in doing so, he was tapping into a specific memory. The first was the memory of Moses and the Exodus. Let me read to you Numbers chapter 27, 15 through 19. Moses is standing on the edge of the promised land. God has told him, you're not going to make it in yourself, but I'll let you see. Moses has seen, and this is what he says. Let the Lord, the God of spirit of all flesh, Appoint someone over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in so that the congregation of the Lord may not be like what? Sheep. So they would not be like sheep without a shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hands upon him. Have him stand before Eleazar, the priest and all the congregation and commission him in their sight. Now, by using this phrase, Jesus is reminding the people of this moment. He's tapping in to the Jewish expectation for a, a new exodus, a second exodus, when God's Messiah would come and lead the people out of their captivity to foreign nations and foreign gods. When Jesus has the people sit in groups of 50s and 100s, he's echoing Moses doing the same thing at his father-in-law's advice, breaking the people into groups of 50s and 100s. By gathering the people in the wilderness in this way, Jesus is shown to be the new Moses, the new Joshua, who will lead the people away from their enemies and into the promised land of God's provision and protection. But there's a second echo as well in this phrase, sheep without a shepherd. It's the David echo, the echo of provision and protection. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, speaking on behalf of God to the corrupt rulers of his day, writes this. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with no one to search or seek for them. 
I myself, verse 15, will be the shepherd of my sheep and I will make them to lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. Through Ezekiel, God was addressing Israel's corrupt kings and prophets. He called them out for neglecting their role as Israel's true shepherds. And he promised that a day would come when God himself would shepherd his people. The memory here is of Israel's greatest king, David, who led the people like the shepherd he once had been. God says that a new kingly shepherd would come who would represent God and lead the people to plentiful pastures, to oases in the wilderness. In telling the story of these thousands being fed, Mark purposely includes this detail. The people sat down on the grass. Do you remember the adjective about the grass? It's the desert. It's the wilderness. What would you expect? Mark says it's green. He includes this purposefully. He's told us he's in a desert wilderness place and yet the grass is green. In the desert place, Jesus has led the people as a shepherd to the green pastures where he will then provide for all of their needs. Now, again, the imagery here is all intentional. I need you to see this. Jesus is the new Moses, but Jesus is also the new David, a shepherd king who will lead the people through the wilderness, protecting them from their enemies, leading to them, them to safe and plentiful pastures where their needs will be provided for. Jesus taps into this memory, into this expectation to show what kind of a savior God has sent for their salvation. This savior will lead them out of captivity like Moses. This savior like David will provide for their needs, protect them from their enemies and lead them to provision like the shepherd king, David. The common theme between Moses and David is that they led the people to salvation in the wilderness. And now Jesus standing in the wilderness is touching these memories. He also leads the people into the wilderness to demonstrate his credentials as the world's true savior, as the new and better Moses, as the new and better David. Jesus will lead them into the wilderness away from every form of captivity. He will provide for them in the wilderness, defending against enemies and leading them to living water in the desert. But by feeding the people in the wilderness, Jesus is not just hearkening to the past as a clue for the scope of God's salvation. He's also pointing them forward. Look at verse 41. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. And from here, the people are fed. Jesus is following the Jewish custom of blessing the meal, of giving thanks to God before they eat. The only difference in the Jewish custom and what Jesus does here is that rather than bowing his head, Jesus looks up to his father in heaven and thanks him for what is about to happen. 
I need you to see that everything in this moment is not only an echo of the past, but it's pointing forward. The wilderness, the crowds of fifties and hundreds, Jesus as the new Moses, as the new David, the prayer of thanksgiving from the son to the father, the bread blessed in anticipation of a future Passover meal where bread will be broken and wine will be shared. Everything about this moment points ahead, a future A future when the people of God will be led forever out of the wilderness. A people where God's enemies, sin, death, and evil will be vanquished forever. A future where God himself will visibly and perfectly shepherd his people. A future where human need, from personal sin to systemic corruption, will have been met finally with the justice and mercy of God. In this moment, the people glimpse into God's future when evil is finally undone, when the wasted years are redeemed, when all that was broken is put back together, when every tear is dried, when dignity is restored and then proclaimed a future when all is made new. Jesus is not only the Moses who leads us out of captivity. Jesus is not only the David who provides and protects us in the wilderness. Jesus is also, according to this passage, the universe's true king who is bringing all of human history to one particular point where God will make all things well. Mm -hmm. We're seeing, I hope you're seeing, why Mark makes such a big deal out of this story of thousands being fed. It's not a magic trick. It's not to show that Jesus is powerful or divine. It's bigger than that. Again, this is not Jesus responding to some chaotic circumstances. This is Jesus stepping intentionally into the chaos of life with full control in order to show us what kind of a savior he is, in order to show us the full extent of God's salvation for this world. And and there's one last thing. Jesus draws from past memories of God's salvation. And he points forward to God's perfect future. But he also, in a way that's kind of subversive, shows that this Savior is deeply involved with our present moment as well. To put it differently, Mark shows us that Jesus is better than Herod. You can just fill in the blank of who you want to replace Herod with this morning. I'm going to leave that to you. Jesus and his disciples, they set out on this trip after learning of John's execution by King Herod. We didn't spend a lot of time on it last week, but the scene that Mark paints is vivid, it's opulent, it's sordid. It's an extravagant feast where there was surely more food and drink than the wilderness crowd had ever seen in their whole life. It's a grotesque scene. Herod and his friends are feasting on vast quantities of food while his subjects are being taxed into poverty. His young stepdaughter forced to dance explicitly before the leering crowd. And yet, yet for all of its excess and luxury, there is no life in the scene in Herod's palace. The church who would have been receiving the story for the first time, maybe 70 years later or so, they knew that Herod would eventually be deposed. 
that he would overgrasp his power and that Rome would send him fleeing. Herod ends up being a footnote to history. There's no life here. Mark sets up the wilderness feeding in direct contrast to Herod's feast. He shows us two different meals. The feast in Herod's palace and the feeding of the thousands in the wilderness. Now, unlike Herod, Jesus hosts his meal in the open air, in the wilderness. There's no military presence providing protection. There's no palace. There's no feast. There's just five loaves and two fish. And yet, despite this apparent lack, Mark shows that the true and fulfilling feast took not not in Herod's palace, but took place in the wilderness. The miraculous feeding is, is, book, is kind of bookended. It's preceded by the disciples proclaiming that the kingdom had come near and they cast out evil. And the feeding is followed by healing literally flowing from Jesus with all who had faith to simply touch him. Though the meal Jesus provides is simple, barely notable, you would not have taken a foodie selfie of it and put it on Instagram. (laughs) The meal is simple. It's, it's, It's hardly worth mentioning. And yet, the way Mark tells the story, this simple meal is far better for the eternal nourishment and salvation that it symbolizes. Far better than anything King Herod had access to. While Herod's banquet ends in gruesome and bloody death, Jesus' simple meal gives life. It's reminiscent of manna in the wilderness. God's perfect on-time provision Mm. for people who are being liberated from their captivity. Amen. Amen. In the wilderness... We find a savior who fulfills the past promise of a new exodus from everything that enslaved us. A savior who leads us into the wilderness and there we find provision and protection. In the wilderness, we find a savior who points forward, who points us to the day when God himself will lead us from the wilderness and into a new city and a new creation where all has been made new. And now, today, as we follow our Savior into the wilderness, we find that his provision is more than enough for us. And not only that, as we journey into the wilderness of God's salvation, we find that the simplicity of God's provision is greater by far than the extravagance and the opulence of this world and its deceptive promises. I'll end with this. There's almost nothing in our world that is going to encourage you to pursue God's salvation into the wilderness. There's almost nothing in this world that is going to encourage you to leave behind comfort, safety, and what is known for the seeming emptiness, desolation, and danger of the wilderness. You and I are told on a daily basis that our hope 
lies in the accumulation of wealth and status. Mm. We are told on an almost daily basis that our security lies in defeating our enemies and minimizing our risks. Mm. We are told almost daily that the blessed life is evident in where we live, mm. in what mm. schools our children attend, mm. in how widely we are known. The world we inhabit is forming us to be, in the words of philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, admirers rather than followers of Jesus. Mm. And this is what he writes. To want to admire instead of to follow Christ, it's not necessarily an invention by bad people. No, it is more an invention by those who spinelessly keep themselves detached, who keep themselves at a safe distance. Admirers are only too willing to serve Christ as long as proper caution is exercised, lest one personally come in contact with danger. And yet to follow this Savior and to know the fullness of his salvation requires that we stop being admirers and we choose the risky and sacrificial way of becoming his followers. Only followers are willing to remain in the wilderness with their Savior. Admirers will become disappointed, will become discomforted, will become discouraged, and admirers will return home. Will you follow him today? Will you follow Jesus into the wilderness today? Will you leave behind the empty promises of this world for an encounter with the Savior who leads us from our captivity, who provides for us in the wilderness, and who one day will lead us into God's renewed creation, who even now is far better than anything our world has to offer? Will you follow him today? It is going to feel dangerous It is going to feel risky. It is going to at times feel like death. Mm. If it doesn't, perhaps you've chosen the way of the admirer rather than the follower. Mm. But unlike the admirer, the follower will never be disappointed by Jesus. Amen. Because through this Savior, because though this Savior leads us into the wilderness, he will always, always, always leave us, lead us to the abundant and eternal life. In this Savior, even in the wilderness, there is no lack. He himself is our living water in the desert place. So even the harshest, most lifeless wilderness becomes for us the oasis of our salvation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. As last week, just take a minute or two, ask the Spirit to speak to you. What might it look like for you to hear the invitation to follow your Savior into the wilderness? 
to leave behind things that have caught you up, that have bound you up, that have enslaved you, to leave behind places where you have found your identity and your status outside of your identity in Jesus. Or maybe for some of us, for the very first time, to say, I will follow you with all of my life. So, Lord God, whatever you have brought to mind in this moment, pray that you would now give us the courage to be obedient to you, to believe the good news that you are better than everything else and that whatever you are calling us from is for our benefit. No matter how hard, no matter how attached, no matter how painful it may feel in the moment. And even though what you call us to so often feels like the desert, so often feels like the the wilderness, so often feels like stepping into the unknown. Would you give us enough faith this morning to follow you into that place, to be led out of captivity, to be led to the green grass, to the good pastures, with the knowledge and the hope that one day you will lead your people out of the wilderness for eternity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. I invite the ushers to come forward at this time. We'll receive the offering. Our prayer ministers will also be up front. They'd love to pray for you this morning as we end our time in worship. Um, if, if the Spirit is speaking in any particular way, ask somebody to pray with you for the courage, for the stamina, for the wisdom to know what the next steps uh, might be. Again, if you're a guest this morning or if you have a prayer card, please drop it in the basket when it goes by in a minute. Um, if you're a guest, actually hang on to your card and bring it to the, to the table in the lobby in the back so we can meet you. Um, and... Uh, Yeah, let's pray for our offering and then we'll close our time in worship. So we thank you for your provision, Lord God. Um, Not not simply in the wilderness, but but as well the the, the mundane day-to-day sort of stuff where we need you even when we don't think we need you. Thank you for providing. Thank you for these gifts. Thank you for the generosity of your people. I pray particularly now your blessing on those today who desire to give and who find themselves in circumstances where it feels impossible to do so. Would you provide? Would you protect for each of their needs in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll receive the offering now and uh, continue to worship. Uh, Please take advantage of our prayer ministers. If you're going to join us for lunch next week, please make sure to have signed up before you leave for that newcomer's lunch. We'd love to feed you and get to know you uh, a little bit then. As you're able, would you please stand and let's worship together. Mm